This podcast contains strong language, adult humour and is intended for a mature audience. Welcome to Is It Art Though with me, Augustina. And me, Ellie. We hope everyone had a really nice festive break. We can reveal that we did watch all of The Princess Switch and The Princess Witch 2. Because <laughs> it was it was mooted last episode. <laughs> Would we get that? We couldn't even bring ourselves to watch The Princess Switch 3. <laughs> I think we were just, we were done by 2. <laughs> It's like um, it's like when you've had too much ice cream and you just you can't move, you can't think, you can't do anything. Vanessa Hudgens just kept splitting and cloning herself. <laughs> we, we decided by the end of the Princess Switch two, watching the trailer for the Princess Switch three, and realizing there was even more Vanessa Hudgens in it. That actually the plural, and this is something I thought I'd never have to come to a conclusion on. The plural of Vanessa Hudgens is Vanessa Hodgei. 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 What do you think the collective noun for a group of Vanessa Hudgenses is? (laughs) (laughs) An embarrassment of Hudgenses. An embarrassment embarrassment of Hodgei. An embarrassment of Hodgei. Yes. (laughs) So this episode, we are going to be talking about Yet another art movement very close to our hearts, but a little bit more in the present day because we've gone quite oldie-worldy of late. Yeah. Uh, so this time we are talking about Dada, which is something we both love yeah. so much. I'm actually really excited about this as well because the interwar period, as I've said to you a lot, is yeah. like some of my favourite historical time and it's definitely a lot of my favourite artistic time. I'm really into those avant-garde, like mm. interwar art movements. I just think they're really fun. Like yeah. I think Dada's really fun. <laughs> and like call us hipster, but we both think Dada is better than surrealism and like I, yeah. <laughs> kind of a bit like but underrated like it's not as mainstream as surrealism but... I was into like I was into the avant-garde movement before it was popular it's like, so but yeah so we we want to talk about Dada also I feel, we've said this a lot as since we've been sort of stuck in the house for two years certain things come up a lot and us saying we've gone a bit Dada is like yeah. is usually a sign that one or both of us is losing our minds yeah. and everything has lost whatever its original meaning was yeah. <laughs> So shall we just start at the beginning and explain why Dada happened? So the beginning of the story of Dada kind of starts with World War One, And I'm not going to go into it too deeply because I think most people do broadly know what World War One was. Mm. But I do think it's very important to the story to both understand the kind of abject horror and really the pointlessness of World War One. So Europe before World War One was dominated by a number of, of superpowers. So there was the now defunct Austro-Hungarian Empire, the newish unified German Empire, there was Russia, France um, and England. And so tensions had been mounting for a long time because the unification of Germany had thrown off the balance of power in Europe. And this led to Russia and France getting quite jumpy and forming an alliance, which in turn pushed Germany closer to its like Austro-Hungarian neighbours. Oh, okay. 
Um, so both sides invested heavily in their military. And this kind of created a powder keg that was just waiting to go off. The situation came to a head in 1914 over control of the Bosnia region. So at the time, Bosnia was annexed by the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But Serbia and many Bosnian Serbs believed it should form part of a pan-Slavic nation. Mm -hmm. And this pan-Slavic nation would happen and it would go on to be known as Yugoslavia. And Yugoslavia is yet another defunct European country. So in 1914, a bunch of revolutionary Bosnian Serb students, with the help of other Serb nationalists, decided to assassinate the heir to the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they decided to assassinate the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who obviously is most famous for his mid-noughties indie baggers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, and this led to something that was called the July Crisis, which kind of saw Austro-Hungary, with the backing of Germany, basically declare war on Serbia, who in turn was backed by Russia. Right. And because Russia was allied with France, Germany attacked France through the neutral country of Belgium, which prompted a previously hesitant England to intervene on the side of Russia and France. Okay, and, yeah. I vaguely remember this from history. But also, like, there was, like, <laughs> so my understanding of the First World War, which granted is a bit patchy, there was, like, a huge groundswell and patriotic feeling mm. towards the war in England, all on behalf of, like, Belgium. Like, when <laughs> it, like I didn't realise it was that deep with Belgium. <laughs> I know. Given <laughs> current, like, we've, we've really done a U-turn with Belgium in recent years as well. <laughs> So, like, <laughs> because England didn't really want to get involved in a continental war. And they were like, I'd rather just play peacekeeper. I'd mm. rather just, let's see if we can, like, talk down the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Let's see if we can keep the peace with France. And then they they go through Belgium and England just, like, loses its shit. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when drunk people are fine, they're totally fine, they're happy, everything's good, they're trying to keep everyone on a level, and then someone just says something and they just like lose their shit. Like, you don't say things like that about Belgium. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna glass you. So so yeah, so Germany sort of attacks France through Belgium and England get involved and hey presto, you've got a big old fucking war on your hands. Mm. And like, I know I'm kind of, I'm laughing and I'm joking and I'm being quite flippant here. And part of that is because, to be honest, I find the ins and outs of World War One like really complex and obscure, but also like extremely fucking boring. It's also just like the <laughs> massive hot-headedness of it all. Yeah. Like, that, like, especially during the July crisis, there's a load of escalations and people just doing really stupid things. Yeah. And then you've got the, like, this huge war on your hands. And at any point, they could have just taken their fingers off the trigger. Like, yeah. they could have just taken their fingers off the trigger at any point. I know. But they don't. Maybe aside from the question of self-determination for the various countries under sort of empirical rule in um, Europe at the time, for me, there isn't really a compelling justification for the First World War. Mm -hmm. It's just like squabbling empires. Yeah, and they were all sort of slowly start. So the one thing that I learned from my traumatic visit to the Imperial War Museum, basically all you guys need to know is that 
Uh, my boyfriend Chris really likes the Imperial War Museum and I decided that I I got the feeling it probably wasn't going to be aimed at me because <laughs> I don't really like war um, <laughs> or learning about war. But World War Two is sort of like one of his favourite specialist subjects. So I decided to be like a nice girlfriend and go along with him to the Imperial War Museum. We didn't even get to the Holocaust Gallery and I was in like I was inconsolable. I was literally <laughs> sobbing. Yeah. So we went through all of World War One, went through all of World War Two and I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. It's horrible. I mean, but, but they it make is it really horrible. But the, like... one, but the thing that I I mean at least yeah, World War Two, you're like, yeah, we're trying to fight the fash. But yeah, World World War One, you're right. It's like it is just big it's big powers squaring up to each other and no one wanting to back down first basically but yeah i'm trying to remember it all it all made when i was in the world war one gallery they take you through the causes of world war one and how it got there and it all made perfect sense when i was there but now i'm not there i'm like no it it, i've gone back to my original position it makes no sense but again it's like a drunk fight it all makes perfect sense when you're in it (laughs) but yeah it's what it's basically what you were saying before the one the one big takeaway i got from from the museum is that there were uh big imperial powers but also at that point it, it is amazing how that war shook society so much which we'll obviously get into when we start to explore the actual art movement but it shook society so much that actually it it sort of forced a lot of things that were wrong with society to it forced them to level up out of sheer necessity so like women playing greater roles in society better education and more opportunities and a kind of breaking down of previous sort of social orders like there's a lot of class comes into it a lot and I mean, if you're if you're knocking about London is, and you want a traumatic day out, go to the Imperial War Museum. You'll learn a lot and you'll be really upset. Which is kind of, <laughs> I think, why the interwar period is one of my favourite periods yeah. historically because there was loads of stuff going... Not to say that, you know, I think it's really important not to look back at history with rose-tinted, romantic, mm. romanticised views of things. So this is just like a personal aside for me. One of the things I always really hate is when people like go on about the blitz spirit and like the stiff upper lip and all of that sort of stuff. It's like, it's a complete rewriting and romanticizing of history that just isn't true. Like people Mm. were absolutely miserable and terrified during the blitz. And to like hark back to that as some great time of Britishness just like really winds me up. So wrong war, different war. (laughs) (laughs) Although I heard a really interesting thing before we get back to World War One. Uh, the other day because you know loads of politicians now since we're now in the 2020s everyone it keeps banging on about the roaring 20s and everyone's like this is going to be the new roaring 20s and stuff oh yeah that's worked out (laughs) (laughs) i'd say it's more like the screaming 20s (laughs) so what we had world pandemic economic disaster climate crisis (laughs) (laughs) i can't i'm not sure i was going with that basically World War One was a big global war and it made a lot of big global things happen yes. <laughs> after that time. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, as I said, the kind of root of it is just squabbling empires. And I know you can kind of boil most wars down to that. But as you made the point earlier, at least in World War Two, we were fighting the Nazis. Yeah. So all of the other, like, geopolitical stuff aside... The Nazis were clearly the bad guys and mm. needed to be stopped. 
World War One, however, is just a lot murkier and to me feels a lot more pointless. Yeah. But what I don't wish to be glib about at all is the complete devastation of World War One. Yeah. Um it it was a horrendous war. World War One seems like a relatively short war to my like sort of twenty first century eyes. So it lasted from nineteen fourteen to nineteen eighteen. And one of the things that came up again and again when I was reading is like on all sides there was this huge patriotic like groundswell mm. and people couldn't wait to basically like sign up and fight for yeah. king and country and all of that sort of stuff but nobody believed it would go on for as long as it went on for well, and... the original thing was with with the english soldiers was they were like we'll be home by christmas yeah because literally everyone thought it would be done and dusted be done in and a few months and it just it it didn't like it went on for you know four yes. years it was funny though, funny, funny is not the word for this, but when I was reading it, you know, my sort of, our frame of reference for war is like kind of wars in the Middle East that yeah. seem to just go on forever. And to be fair, I think officially the wars probably don't go on forever, but we hmm. see the sort of, the continued presence of troops and stuff like that. And it feels like they've just been going on for like 20 years. Yeah. So a four year war to me seems quite snappy. <laughs> But it obviously didn't feel that way to like to people at the time. Yeah. And the First World War was like the first proper industrial global scale war. Not just affecting the European superpowers that I've already spoken about, but also affecting Italy, Japan, the United States, the Middle East, India and parts of Africa. Yeah. Because of these empires. Because of these empires. And this has been like largely forgotten today, but historians estimate that at least a million people died in German-controlled East Africa as a direct result of World War One. Mm. So overall, around 40 million people across the world died in World War One. Yeah. And as I say, like it was the first modern mechanised war that used things like machine guns and trench warfare and, and things like that. Mm. And it was also a war that relied heavily on civilian soldiers, both yeah. through conscription and, as I said at the beginning of the war, when people were just, like, dying to sign up. Oh, that is the thing I remember from the museum. I tell you why there were so many conscripted soldiers. Because, and this was particularly a problem for England, actually, because we had a really strong navy, but not a very big army. And that meant that when we sent our experienced army into a mechanised war zone that they hadn't trained for, loads of them died, and then there were barely any actual trained soldiers left. So then they were put in charge of training up civilian soldiers who didn't have a fucking clue what they were doing at all. So that's actually... That's why, in England at least, we actually had so many civilian soldiers is because our our actual army was so small and just got wiped out in the first few months. Yeah, it was just, it was hot, like, it's just, it was just mass scale slaughter on mm. on a level that the world had, I don't think, ever seen before. Yeah. So, it, it practically just, like, destroyed an entire generation of young men. Mm. They either died, or they were horribly maimed, yeah. or they suffered unimaginable, like, psychological scarring. Yeah, and loads of artists actually went to the front as well. Franz Mark did all those paintings of blue horses mm-hmm. and stuff. He died in the First World War, and then you obviously you've got all the poets and stuff who died in the First World War. So it wasn't. I mean, I think Breton first became interested in surrealism when he was. um, I know when he was working as like a 
psych nurse on a shell shock ward or yes, something after yes. the First World War. Yes, you're right. And that's you when, told me this. Yeah, and obviously I there's the. You're like, and you put Andre Breton in charge <laughs> of severely traumatized. <laughs> yeah, people. I was like, who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously there's like the Freudian thing as well because like Freud would have been like yeah. doing his stuff at the time. So like, you've got all of this. Damien Hurst in charge of a zoo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. So that's when uh, that's when Breton first really started becoming um, interested, interested in, the in the mind and, and right. the subconscious. Oh is wor- working on a shell shock ward after yeah. the First World War. God, um, what a perfect storm that would have been. He yeah. probably sat there going, "So what I'd really like to do is like I just I just really want to cut someone's eye." <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> this nurse is crazy. <laughs> I'm scared. (laughs) I feel like I can only know you through your retina. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so like, as we've already discussed, the First World War changed the world forever. Mm. And it ushered in the fall of empires, the formation of entirely new countries. And it was also obviously the direct uh, precursor for the Russian Revolution and the eventual formation of the USSR. Yeah. The aftermath of the war created the conditions for European fascism, mm. especially like Nazism in Germany. Yeah. Cause I guess that nationalism just didn't go away. And it's interesting that people just and thought, also, Oh, well we've 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 dealt with this now that we've had yeah. this big war and it's like, no, I mean, it's still there. I think especially in Germany, and obviously I'm talking quite broadly, this is not my mm. area of expertise. But I think especially in Germany you've gone from being like a huge proud empire to being a country that is heavily sanctioned like mm. heavily heavily sanctioned by they the rest to of pay europe out so many reparations yeah that it like basically crippled them and it just created a crucible for... yeah also and so oh. you've got kind of pre-war germany yeah and then you've got post-war germany that is just in such a chaotic mm. state and that is exactly when fascism thrives like yeah. with the benefit of hindsight which is always 2020 it's like yeah i mean clearly that is exactly the grounds for for fascism yeah yeah and you know you you feel like you've one of the way fascism works is you have to focus on a past glory that you're mm. getting back to and the reason you can't get back to that past glory is because of x group yeah so it's Obviously, in the case of Nazism, it was the Jews. Yeah. Or, yeah, or also disabled people, black people, Romani people. It, yeah. There's this other that you have to blame for losing your past glory. And that's a really key part of mm. how, like, fascism works, right? Yeah. Um, which is interesting when you think about things like Make America Great Again. Yeah. Uh, and slogans like that. I don't believe Trump is a fascist, and I'm not saying he is. But there are certain... Types can, of rhetoric. There are certain types of rhetoric that you can mm. certainly like point to. Yeah. And I think the world, yeah, World War One created the perfect conditions for like a fascist groundswell. Also silly hats. Yes, silly hats. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of the world the Dardaris found themselves in. And I know that this didn't start very fun or like jovial or funny, but mm. I think it's really important to understand the, yeah. the terrain that they're operating in. And, you know, we were saying that nowadays... We're in such a kind of weird, slightly dystopian world that actually memes are a really great way of um, releasing a pressure valve and like having this really absurd humour where putting stuff together that makes no sense yeah. is actually the kind of best way to make sense of a mad situation. Yeah. 
that kind of we were saying that there's a lot of parallels between the way Dada does that and the way that people now will like use memes because uh, it's yeah because because it's this kind of shared language that is at the same time totally like nonsensical. Yeah, one of my favourite tweets slash memes ever, and I think about it like all the time, is somebody screenshotted a stupid headline from, you know, something like Bloomberg or one of those yeah. magazines. And the headline was, why is millennial humour so weird? And then they just put underneath it, it's called the resurgence of neo dadaism you uncultured swine. Go take an <laughs> art class and get depressed like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> go take an art class and get depressed <laughs> that should be that should really be the um the description for our show <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like the dada story and i promise yeah we're, go- we're gonna get funner from now on the dada story really starts in like zurich switzerland with the opening of the Cabaret Voltaire by Emmy Hennings and Hugo Ball. So Zurich was actually a really important cultural hub during World War One because Switzerland is a completely neutral nation. And that's kind of, that's recognised by uh, the rest of the world. And it's like recognised yeah. by the UN and stuff. They don't, they do have an army, but they won't involve themselves in any warfare and instead focus on humanitarian efforts like mm. accepting sort of refugees. And being able to open all kinds of things with their little with their lives. little tiny knives, yeah, and Toblerones. <laughs> exactly. That's, what, that's like, what they focus on. Oh no, there's a bottle that needs opening. <laughs> Call the army. So that's that's what I just that's why I imagine the Swiss Army get up to that and fondue. <laughs> fondue. Fondue Toblerones and being on time. Yeah. Uh, really, 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 really good watchers. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you can tell that we. We did vote Remain. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry, Switzerland. I'm yeah, so sorry. I don't sorry. know if we have... Li- I'll have to we're, check. We're fans of you. I feel like we bagged on Switzerland in the last episode yeah, as well. Yeah, I'm really sorry. It was, because of, it was because of the stupid Christmas movies. Look, we don't think you're... Uh, we don't think Christmas movies should be set there either. <laughs> and I'm sorry that I'm perpetuating this ridiculous stereotype that all you're interested in is like cuckoo clocks and fondues and tiny little pen knives i understand that there's like there's a lot of nuance there you're into all kinds of clocks (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so switzerland was completely neutral basically during world war one it became a haven for artists pacifists socialists who didn't end up capitulating to nationalism and sort of thinkers who were fleeing the war. Mm. So actually really interestingly, this is just like an interesting side thing I found out when I was like researching Zurich. The guys who opened the Cabaret Voltaire, so Hennings and Hugo Ball, were literally like next door neighbours with Lenin. Like, and I just love that. I love that like Vladimir Lenin was just like chilling out next door to these guys. (laughs) I wonder if he could like hear them being mad and he's like... I'm trying to write my pamphlet, guys. Turn turn that crap down. (laughs) Damn art students. (laughs) Yeah. I also like that fact you told me. The Germans actually snuck 
Lenin back into Russia from Switzerland in order to cause a revolution. Yeah, so basically, I like I did, yeah, like weird little twists of history. So he's living next door to uh, Cabaret Voltaire, the Cabaret Voltaire, getting annoyed with their like free poetry. <laughs> and the Germans are like, oh, we really need Russia out of this war. Like, and obviously there was other stuff going on in Russia. The war was very unpopular. Like the the Tsar was very unpopular. The people mm. were starving. There was lots of things going on in Russia. But the Germans like really need Russia out of this war what's gonna fuck them up i know let's send vlad the lad over <laughs> that mad bastard <laughs> so, this is also, what i love is the idea that i mean revolutions are big things and <laughs> russia is a huge country and i i really enjoy that they just thought this is our guy he's definitely gonna he's the one he's the mento in the bottle of coke that's gonna call but also the fact that he must be like guys look I'm telling you now, you think carefully about this before you send me back because I'm I I can I can start a revolution like you just you don't know how powerful I am. <laughs> so to be fair, there were like a number. The Russian Revolution didn't happen in one go. Right. Like okay. there were like this a number my, of revolutions. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm gonna do a thing that is what we just did earlier of like I just have no idea. I as far as as far as I'm concerned. Vlad the lad turned up with, all right, lads. All right, mate. <laughs> Starting a revolution. Yeah, and then everyone kind of went, yeah, all right, sound. <laughs> and then that's sort of how it happened. I, I, it sounds like I'm wrong and I fundamentally... No, but it's a much more fun story. I mean, it is a much more fun story. So there, there were like a number of... I should, I should know this and I don't know the ins and outs of it, but there were like a number of revolutions in Russia. Mm. It didn't all happen in one go. So I think they were already in a revolutionary state. But then um, they were like, the Germans were like, what's really going to fuck up Russia? I know, right? If we send Lenin over, right. he's going to do another revolution. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to do a Bolshevik revolution. <laughs> and that's how the October Revolution ended up happening. Yeah. Yeah, so like Zurich was a place where people could debate and they could write and they could create and they could perform free of the kind of jingoism and war fervor that was kind of sweeping Europe at the time. Mm. So the o the opening night of the Cabaret Voltaire was attended by um, Emmy Hennings and Hugo Ball, who obviously kind of set up the uh, joint. Uh, Tristan Zara, you know, is a leading figure of Dadaism. Yeah. Jean Arp, Marcel Janko, who along with others like Sophie Tuba and Richard... Holsenbeck and Hans Richter. Richter? Richter? Richter. Richter. They're all really Germanic names, so I was gonna say like <laughs> say like pretend you're the chef in the Muppets, but he's Swedish, so that's that's no help at all. <laughs> Again, guys, we did vote Romain. Sorry, Yeruk. <laughs> We're honestly very cosmopolitan. I feel like <laughs> I feel like being being on mic brings out my inner like gammon dad. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, Emmy Hennings, Hugo Ball, Tristan Zara, Jean Arp, Marcel Janko. Should we just start that again? <laughs> I sort of like when we get vaguely racist. <laughs> counteracts any any sort of 
we definitely like it just it's we're trying to appeal to all bases because we don't want people are gonna be like oh it's it's an artsy podcast they'll just be oh, they'll be lefty liberals, liberals. well <laughs> so we just like to sprinkle a bit of racism in every like, you know. xenophobia for yeah. the, for the masses. <laughs> we, <laughs> i know what the mass is like <laughs> research- laughing through gritted teeth <laughs> researching world war one has just made us incredibly <laughs> nationalistic <laughs> Okay, so you can do a slightly offensive voice to read those names out, or we can just plough through and... (laughs) So, Emmy Hennings, Hugo Ball, Tristan Zara, Jeanne Up, Marcel Janko, along with others like Sophie Truber, Richard Holsenbeck, and Hans Richer started putting on performances at the Cabaret Voltaire. I'm sorry, I was so thrown by all the Germanic names. In my defence, I'm very dyslexic. (laughs) It's a perfect storm. Xenophobia and dyslexia. (laughs) (laughs) I love Germans. (laughs) Also, a lot of these are Hungarians, for fuck's sake. Yeah, I mean, also, Hugo Ball is actually German. Yeah. And he's got one of the most easy to pronounce names in that list. There is actually a really good uh, BBC documentary, if you are so inclined. It's a, it's called Gaga for Dada, and it's uh, presented by Vic Reeves, uh, a.k.a. Jim Moore? Moore? His real name. We're good. We're not good at any names. <laughs> That's like a Scottish name. I'm not even good yeah, at that. <laughs> but it's really good. And he talks a bit in there about the founding of Cabaret Voltaire, and that it was actually just a regular bar, wasn't it? It was just like a normal beer joint. And then these these lot turned up and went, could we put on a cabaret, draw in some punters? And he was like, sure, that sounds good. But I like, so like, obviously it was opened by Omi Hennings and Hugo Ball, right? And to be fair, I do think it was just like a normal place. I think they were really into like sausages and absinthe or something. That yeah, you was can their still, crack. You can still go there and get sausages and absinthe. <laughs> that was their whole beer. thing. Yeah. So to be fair, it was named the Cabaret Voltaire after Voltaire. Yeah. Because they were quite into his, you know, the way he would, like, make fun of religion. And so they obviously had some kind of leanings. And then Hugo Ball clearly just, like, ran with it because he (laughs) ends up, like, penning the Dardarist Manifesto. So these guys, like Tristan, uh, Zara, and, and, and the others, I think were actually, not all of them, but definitely Tristan, Zara, and some others, were actually uh, Jewish-Hungarian migrants. Right, okay. And they were modernist uh, artists, I believe, in Hungary. I know said Hungary then. It's getting worse <laughs> by the second. They were um, modernist artists in Hungary and they sort of brought a lot of that with them. Okay. And then Hugo Ball was just like, I'm into this. I, I wonder if poor, like, Emmy Hennings was just like, oh, for God's sake. I just wanted a nice cabaret. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure she was very into it as well. Emmy Hennings did some kind of like modern dancing and so did Sophie Torber, Tuba. They were both into that into that newfangled choreography uh, that like is all about expressing yourself and not about like doing any Not sort of... doing any actual dance. Yeah. yeah. So I, think... I did a lot of that in university. Expressing that, yourself like, expressive, interpretive dance. I, we had to do that some, sometimes at school and it was usually like the worst 
half an hour of my life. Have you ever heard of Eurythmy? No. Oh my god, right. So Will told me, do you know what a Steiner school is? Yes, I do know about Steiner yeah, schools. Like, I just find this ridiculous. So, sorry. I, god, maybe we should gun Steiner schools now. <laughs> <laughs> like, basically, Will went to a Steiner school and he yeah. told me they had to do this thing called Eurythmy. And I, to the, for the life of me, I've never worked out what it was. But every day they had to like, I don't know, like, it seems like hippie cheerleading or something. <laughs> to, like, spell things out with their body and, like, do weird movements. Oh, and, my like, God, do you know what, Wait, though? I'm going to Google it. What is Eurythmy? I think when he's trying to explain it to me, I was like, is that hippie cheerleading? I don't understand. I mean, I, I just think you have Eurythmics, but Eurythmics, I'm I'm just saying it now. I think Eurythmics is probably going to be better than whatever Eurythmy is. Yeah. Um, Eurythmy is an art movement essential to Waldorf education, okay. accompanied by live instrumental music or by human voice or spoken poetry um, and tales. Eurythmy has been called visual song and visual speech. Okay. And so basically it's like a weird kind of like hippie interpretive dance like thing. But my, all of you know this what? must my, have been... My mum actually made me do this just independently. <laughs> this is a fun fact that you didn't know about my mum. My mum said that when I was really little, like a toddler, when when she was when we were at home, she would like put music on and we would do like movement together. And she'd be like, I want you to be a tree. I don't remember any of this. My mum was like, do you not remember we used to do this? And I was like, no, no memories. I think I might have just blacked the whole thing out. <laughs> I think even as a small child, I was like, I don't enjoy this. <laughs> I've put that into my repression box, mother, and I would prefer it stays there. Thank I'm you. I'm feeling very triggered right now by you with me. <laughs> um, yeah, so like the performances that they would put on at the Cabaret Voltaire were completely mental. Yeah. Um, and tended to contain like nonsense poetry, nonsensical plays. I mean, the poor bartender. Yeah. He, just, he, really... <laughs> he just really needed a job. <laughs> it didn't last very long either, did it? The Cabaret Voltaire. No, not at all. Unsurprisingly. So, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, it only lasted for like less than a year because I think basically nonsense poetry is not going to pay the rent. <laughs> yeah. So if I remember rightly, the first performance at the Cabaret Voltaire had a number of different so you had Hugo Ball doing his iconic poem, Carawan, which we'll go into. <laughs> uh, was it Tristan Zara? This is all in... Actually, if, you, if you're interested in this, um, it's actually all in the, the, the Gargar for Dada documentary. Tristan Zara came on and started shouting stuff in, like, French. And then didn't two more people on, come on and start shouting the same things, but in their own language. So they, yeah. someone was yelling in German, someone was yelling in, like, Hungarian... And it was all just becoming one big noise. And someone else came on with loads of like balalaika players or something. <laughs> and um, it was like, it was just like a incredibly... Sounds like a great Saturday night. <laughs> yeah. But um, I guess the idea is that, like what we were saying about the memes, that it actually, the meaning of it is a total lack of meaning. So it's like pure anarchy yeah. in a kind of world where everything that previously made sense has been blown up yes literally yeah so um as you've already talked about like i think one of the most common uh, mon- one of the most iconic images sorry from the cabaret voltaire is of hugo ball reciting Car- caraway okay, yeah um and basically he's wearing 
lots of like cardboard tubes and yeah. cones all over himself and he he's got like, like apparently he was trying to dress up as some kind of religious authority it sort figure. of makes sense though because that big cone hat makes yeah. him look like it's a bit like a papal hat like it makes it, him look it, it sort of looks like what your mum puts you in for world book day when <laughs> she, she didn't realise <laughs> She's you like, know that he's the Pope. <laughs> oh yeah, when, when she dresses as Florida, <laughs> and it's just a mattress with the word Florida written on it and an orange cover to the mattress. Uh, actually, that was incredibly. Hugo Ball would have loved that. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, the costumes for these performances were literally just created from any old shit they found around them, yeah. like, like bits, of, like cardboard bits of tubes and bits of trash. And Carawain was made up of nonsensical, nonsensical syllables utter, uttered in a pattern that created a rhythm and emotion, but didn't resemble any known language. So, according to Art Story. The resulting lack of sense was meant to reference the inability of European powers to solve their diplomatic problems through the use of rational language, mm. thus leading us into World War One. Oh. And apparently when he... And yeah, like, as okay. you said, he also tied in, like, a religious element because he's got a kind of, like... Vaguely papal... Pa- vaguely cardboard papal... Outfit <laughs> cardboard outfit. And when he was doing the poem if you want to call it that (laughs) he was like basically chanting it um in a religious sounding way yeah and so he's pulling in the kind of like he's pulling in religious and political and but also he's just reciting nonsense dressed in cardboard yeah so and that's kind of the whole Dada flex, right? Yeah, <laughs> if you like... needed to sort of sum it up in a in a nutshell, yeah. that is that is that's what I sent to you when I thought we were <laughs> I sent that to you, and I was like, if we're doing this by the end of lockdown, I think <laughs> someone needs to adjust. We need to live in separate houses. We've listened to so much of this like nonsense sound poetry, sound poetry and I just oh hate it. God. It is like the worst bit. Like to clarify, and I do feel like I should clarify. I enjoy a lot of Dada. I find it funny and weird and like I enjoy Mm. a lot of it. But the sound poetry, they won't shut up about it and it is the worst bit. Yeah, it's really (laughs) annoying because I feel like the people who were into it were like, they they were like, I'm going to die on this hill (laughs) saying my weird nonsense. And everyone was like, oh, for God's sake, can you not just... Although also, this is an... An incredible pocket of the internet I discovered just before we started recording was on YouTube. There is a video of Marie Osmond reading Carawan for Ripley's Believe It or Not. (laughs) Like, (laughs) the number of incredibly strange, (laughs) converging things going on there is like what was it you said to me when you were watching the when we were watching the video you were like this mo this might be the most dada thing of all (laughs) (laughs) this is like are we are we are we in a post meaning world now (laughs) Uh, it was so marie osmond reading carowan's uh an interesting experience yeah i really enjoyed the comments uh someone commented on that uh, saying, wow, Marie was a natural speaking in the poetry language. <laughs> poetry language! The poetry language. And also, 
also, that would make Hugo Ball so angry because the point is it's not supposed to be any language. <laughs> also, she did it wrong. So I, the, my yeah. main takeaway when I thought she did it wrong, I mean, she could do it however she wants. It's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing the meaningless nonsense wrong. <laughs> my main takeaway when I actually listened to it and I listened to her doing it is I was like, yeah, it sounded just sort of sounds like German, to be honest. Like, I know it's obviously a nonsense language, but yeah. it sounds very Germanic. Also, and you can't get away from that. Like, your language is your language, and you can't, yeah. like, even if I was trying to make up nonsense words, I could make up nonsense words. But they would have an English tilt. They'd have yeah. an Anglo tilt, wouldn't they? Yeah. So. And I think the the other nice bit of this whole video is that it was done in 1985 so it, it, it's just great it's incredibly like grainy video footage and her hair is huge so you've just got this like it's got this angry 80s woman just reciting caravan in a really strange way um for ripley's believe it or not so yeah oh my god go and watch that it's great <laughs> and I, I i can't believe i don't know how i found it I don't know. I was looking. I looked up Dada sound poetry, and Marie Osmond talks about Dada sound poetry was like the first hit. <laughs> but shockingly, I think terribly only has a thousand views. That yeah. should be the most viewed thing on the internet. That's a crime. <laughs> Please go and watch it. You'll enjoy it so much. I mean, we're gonna go through a lot of sound poetry in this episode, but I think it might be the best one. I think. The performers at the Cabaret Voltaire, as much as we're kind of joking about it, they're just doing mm. their nonsense. They were sort of using art to express their dismay and disgust with the war. Yeah. Um, and the kind of social interests that had created it. So abstraction was their weapon to fight against the social, political and uh, cultural ideas at the time. So they would shock and they would provocate in order to subvert social convention because they believed that it was bourgeois society's apathy that was the root cause of World War One. Right. And so they believe, yeah, they believed that like bourgeois society was just so apathetic that it would rather destroy itself than challenge the status quo it would rather mm. wage war on itself than than challenge the status quo and you know i think taken from what i said at the top i pretty much see where they're coming from yeah. <laughs> like, so yeah that was kind of in a nutshell the beginning of dada yeah and yeah although as we said like the cabaret voltaire was open for less than a year like it was barely open at all I'm it's... surprised it lasted a year. <laughs> yeah. um, like, it, it's become this huge part of history because it yeah. was known to, like, shock, delight, entertain, and sometimes just straight up enrage its audiences. And that's the thing that I found incredible <coughs> about all of the different Dada works of art. And we've said this, remember we said it in the pre raphaelites episode about the things people choose to get angry about. People would lose their minds I over, don't know, like, if I, had to, I don't know, if I had to listen to that sound poetry for long enough, I reckon I'd start <laughs> smashing a bar up as well. <laughs> Do you remember when we were watching? I might even have been hung over when we were watching that documentary and I was uh-huh. just like, you need to turn it off. I'm so stressed. <laughs> yeah. kept doing sound poetry. Oh God, it was awful. So nobody actually really knows where the term Dada came from or who coined it. There is a story that Ball opened a French to German dictionary and chose the words at random. 
but that's really never been verified. We do know, however, that Ball sort of penned the first Dadaist manifesto in 1916, which proclaimed Dada as an art movement. Um, and I actually found it and it's quite short. So I thought it would be fun to do a little reading of the Dadaist manifesto. So mm-hmm. I'll take it from here. All right. <clears throat> Dada is a new tendency in art. One can tell this from the fact that until now, nobody knew anything about it. And tomorrow, everyone in Zurich will be talking about it. Dada comes from the dictionary. It is terribly simple. In French, it means hobby horse. In German, it means goodbye, get off my back, be seeing you sometime. In Romanian, yes, indeed, you are right, that's it. But of course, yes, definitely right. And so forth. Uh, Well... (laughs) (laughs) An international word, just a word, and the word a movement. Very easy to understand. Quite terribly simple. To make of it an artistic tendency must mean that one is anticipating complications. Dada psychology, Dada Germany, come indigestion and fog paroxysm. I like the come indigestion. That was my favourite bit when I was reading it. Yeah. Dada literature, Dada bourgeoisie. He just wants a big Dada franchise, yeah. doesn't he? And yourselves, honoured poets, who are always writing with words, but never writing the word itself, who are always writing around the actual point. Dada world war without end, Dada revolution without beginning, Dada you friends, and also poets, esteemed sirs, manufacturers, and evangelists. Dada Zara. Dada Helsenbeck, Dada Medada, Dada Medada, Dada Mahm, Dada Dera, Dada, Dada Hue, Dada Za. <laughs> okay. How, <laughs> how how does hmm, how does one achieve eternal bliss by saying Dada? Dada. Dada. How does... I mean, as somebody who said it quite a lot in the last 30 seconds, do you feel blissful? I don't know what I feel. <laughs> I don't know if I have... I don't know what feelings are. How does one become famous? By saying Dada. I really hope so. I hope we get a million subscribers now I've said that. <laughs> With a noble gesture and delicate propriety. Till one goes crazy. Till one loses consciousness. How can one get rid of everything that smacks of journalism, worms, (laughs) (laughs) everything nice and right, blinkered, moralistic, Europeanized, enervated? By saying Dada. Dada is the world soul. Dada is the pawn shop. Dada is the world's best lily milk soap. Dada, Mr. Rubiner. Dada Mr. Corodi, Dada Mr. Anastasius Lilienstein. In plain language, the hospitality of the Swiss is something to be... Prof- yes, it fucking is. The hospitality of the Swiss is something to be profoundly appreciated. Yes. They've been, ve- they've been very patient. They've been patient. very good to you. Yeah. <laughs> and in question of aesthetics, the key is quality. I shall be reading poems that are meant to dispense with conventional language no less, and to have done with it. <clears throat> oh God, there's more. Dada Johann Foxgang Goethe. Dada Stondal. Dada Dalai Lama. <laughs> Buddha, Bible, and Nietzsche. 
it sort of starts when he's going like da da Dalai Lama. It sort of sounds like you know, like weird nineties grunge lyrics. <laughs> yes, that is the kind of thing you do it in like a James song yeah. or something. <laughs> uh, where are we? Oh yeah, da da ma da 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 da. It's a question of connections and of loosening them up a bit to start with. I don't want words that other people have invented. All the words are other people's inventions. I want my own stuff, my own rhythm, and vowels and consonants too, matching the rhythm and all my own. If this pulsation is seven yards long, I want words for it that are seven yards long. Mr. Schultz's words are only two and a half centimetres long. What's he got to do with it? <laughs> What's I what? I know, he's beefing, like, his beefs are so specific. <laughs> I feel like he's this is like when Father Ted does that big speech about all the people who've wronged him and he's just he just ticks off a list of there's not there's not much left. I know it feels incredibly long. <laughs> I like how you were like, oh it's a really short manifesto. And then when you, you read, read it, it out, in your head it's, it's shorter. It's somehow shorter. And all the all the sound poems look really short and then yeah. when they're read out you're like, this nev- never ends. <laughs> At least there was, this is in there words. was a bit earlier. There was a bit earlier when we were listening to a sound poem, and you just really, like, really, in such a harrowed voice, said, "This is the length of an entire popular music song. <laughs> <laughs> it's three minutes." Yeah. <laughs> I also like that I said it like someone's nan. <laughs> it's a popular music song. <laughs> I do declare. Um. <laughs> It will serve to show how articulated language comes into being. I let the vowels fool around. I let the vowels quite simply occur as a cat meows. Words emerge, shoulders of words, legs, arms, hands of words. Ow, we, uh. <laughs> One shouldn't let too many words out. A line of poetry is a chance to get rid of all the filth that clings to this accursed language, as if put there by stockbrokers' hands, hands worn smooth by coins. I want the word where it begins and ends. Dada is the heart of words. Each thing has its word, but the word has become a thing by itself. Why shouldn't I find it? Why can't a tree be called pluplush and pluplublash when it has been raining? Why can't it? Why can't it, Hugo? <laughs> The word, the word, the word outside your domain, your stuffiness, this laughable impotence, you, your stupendous smugness, outside all the parrotry of your self-evident limitedness. The word, gentlemen, is a public concern of the first importance. It's finally over. I did think when I was reading it in my head, I was like, that's a brilliant what does he say? Your self-evident limits or something. What, what does he say? Your, your, self-emi- your self-evident limitedness. Yes. I was like, yeah, that's that's a hell of a par. Like if somebody <laughs> said that, that sounds like the sort of thing like your mum says to you and it cuts real deep. Yeah. <laughs> I do think it kind of is a little bit undermined by him saying, why can't a tree be a pluplush? <laughs> like, because... <laughs> Uh, something like I feel like your your nephew would ask you, and you'd be like, "Because it's a tree." <sighs> because it's a tree. Shut up. Go to bed. 
It's ten at night. I really want to watch Love Island. I can't watch it while you're in the room. Imagine if Hugo Ball is like, I don't know if he was like married or whatever, but he'd be in bed being like, but why can't trees be called blah blah blah? And his wife would be like, can you shut up and can we have sex now? (laughs) (laughs) By 1920, Dada was an international art movement. It, It had spread right across Europe. And it's kind of weird because it had... I'm just trying to work out like whether it was popular or not. I can never quite figure it out. So you've got like yeah. the Cabaret Voltaire mm-hmm. that's become this huge historical thing, but obviously was open for less than a year because everybody was like, what are these crackheads doing? Yeah. And then you get offshoots all over Europe. Yeah. But also, you know, there were like various, I don't know, shows and fairs and things like that that just had next to no attendance and yeah. like didn't sell any tickets well, I feel when like people did go they got so angry at what they saw that they <laughs> smashed it up yeah. I do think that it does feel like a movement where it did have a huge influence and for the people who were in it it was it was this amazing new thing but I feel like most people in the world, like 95% of people were just like, we don't really understand what is happening. I think it's, it is the beginning of modern art where yeah. most people, you sort of, ha- it's the beginning it's of people true. being really challenged and being like, I literally don't understand I what this what is. is this? But, and yeah. it's true. And it, like, you know, ironically, that's obviously where we take our podcast name from, the is it art though? Because you get yeah. the classic like, mm, is it art crowd? Like, yeah. I don't, if it's not like a painting on a canvas, I don't understand if it's art or not. Yeah. But I also feel like there's a real... DIY spirit to, to Dada mm. and well, like, I've, like I'll come back to this actually I think in the legacy of Dada but these guys must have really been plugging away because like I say like, I cannot imagine they were getting lots of money from anybody to do this like sound poems well, and shit I mean like, poor old I don't know when well, we might do, do, is Kurt Schwitter coming, coming he's later he's coming <laughs> poor guy I mean he died incredibly poor but I, again I it's not it, it's not Ponder Replay is it it's like, <laughs> It's not something you're going to be humming to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't. (laughs) And again, I don't know how long that is, but but let me tell you, it doesn't feel like an hour. Rihanna's a very rich woman and Kurt Schmitter's died in penniless. You <laughs> should have uh, added some, I don't know, maybe just like a, a bit of bass or some drum beats some or something. Drums. I don't know. He's missing some stuff. So, yeah, like I say, it became like a huge sort of international art movement. It had offshoots in Germany, Cologne, New York, France, Italy, Romania, uh, Yugoslavia, Japan and Russia. Yeah, so they must have really picked up the mantle quickly in Yugoslavia because that didn't exist until after the First World War. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, it's a little bit like um, in just post-revolutionary Russia when they were like, we want a whole new art movement. Yeah. We want something that really, we've got a whole new a whole new country, a whole new art movement. We want to just like start with a clean slate kind of thing. So um, maybe I, I feel like there are a lot of countries there who would come out of that war and be like, this is great. This is like, this is exactly what we need to throw off that imperial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like mantle or whatever. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess so. I think I like it. Yeah, it. Yes, I, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> But the problem is, is none of them got along with each other and they spent a huge amount of time just like attacking each other. Yeah. I think you said by 1922. Yeah, it was, the- in, it was in that really aggressive long documentary with with all the, the one that we were watching while you were hungover. It's great. That documentary is actually really good because I like the way that all the facts are presented really deadpan <laughs> and it makes it even more ridiculous. So yeah, she was like, by 1922... Dada factions were all producing their own journals and newspapers with the sole purpose of attacking each other. <laughs> and they they were, as we've seen, most art movements we've talked about so far have their little zines. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Do the Dadaists love a zine? Oh, do they love a zine? Oh my God, there was about 10 million of them. Yeah, <laughs> and they're all, <coughs> just, they're all just published to bitch about each other. <laughs> Yeah, the Cologne Dadaists would attack the Berlin Dadaists for their strongly held political beliefs. So Max Ernst once wrote to Tristan Zara saying, the German intellectuals can neither shit nor pee without ideology, which I just think (laughs) is a great quote. (laughs) Another epic part. (laughs) And to be fair, he was basically right. So during the first Dada International Fair in Berlin, they hung an effigy of a German officer with a pig's head attached to it. And he was wearing a placard that said, hung by the revolution. Mm. George Groz, so who is another sort of German Dadaist, is quoted as saying, if one calls my work art, depends on whether one believes the future belongs to the working class. So they're clearly very like, we are socialists. Yeah, or at, at, at the very least, the the German wing of Dadaism is yeah, yeah. extremely political. <laughs> extremely political, extremely socialist. Um, and so, uh, and also this is um, one of my, this is one of my favourite little tidbits. And um, it's about your, your friend. Your, Kurt Schwitters. Yeah. Oh. So basically, Kurt Schwitters tried to enter the Berlin Dardaris Collective and they basically denied him entry on account of his bourgeois face. <laughs> Nothing else, just his bourgeois face. Which is just so for... bitchy. Yeah, and I have such a soft spot for Kurt Schwitters because in this <laughs> in this incredibly long Dada documentary that we watched, <laughs> what would happen is they would like go through all the different historical events of Dada. So they'd be like, Tristan Zara did this, Max Ernst was doing that, Hugo Bald was doing this. And then what they would do is just occasionally they'd be like, meanwhile, in the Isle of Man, Kurt Schwitters is still doing sound poetry. <laughs> and then 20 minutes later, it'd be like, meanwhile, now in the Lake District and incredibly poor, Kurt Schwitters is still doing sound poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and his poetry was just him going... It's just like, we were like this guy. Oh my God, of all the things that you have devoted your life's work to. That is the hill you're going to die on. That is, that is, you have just... You know, suffering for your art. It's like, that was the art you chose? (laughs) I mean, again, like, I would say... I understand the sign like as with all of the stuff that happens with Dada, there's there's bits that we love and we'll talk about them. There's bits that we understand the importance of why they had to happen, but like 
just they can I think there are some things that are best left in the past and yes. I think sound poetry is one of those yeah I don't know if you've got that impression from us by now but we're not big fans <laughs> <laughs> having researched this a lot I think we would be happy to like not listen to sound poems ever again ever again oh my god there was this thing there was like a Tate Lates thing and they emailed me about it and they were like oh do you want to come to like Tate Lates Dardaris night and I was looking through it and I was like that'd be so cool I was like I might even ask Augustina if she wants to go we could do a Tate Lates yeah Dardaris night and then I started looking through the agenda and it was like and there'll be live sound poetry readers I was like fuck (laughs) done Uh, although those immersive late nights are a bit they're good. There, there are some really fun bits, but because they obviously have to create an event that um, goes through the whole massive building that's an art gallery, you've got some great bits. So I went to this post. I went to this ex- post-expressionist one that was all like Pollock and Rothko and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there was a room where you got to make your own Pollock painting, and you could throw paint on the floor, and that was really cool. But then there was a room with. It was like an immersive drama room where you could, could you could enter Peggy Guggenheim's salon, <laughs> and it was just really uncomfortable because <laughs> you're just a normal person, and all of these people are like, "Oh my god, come in! Do you love art?" And it was just like, oh, I, I, it made me so intensely like I've never been more awkward and British in my life, and I was just sort of going, "Oh, I I don't really understand what is." Oh, it seems that you're pretending to be another person. Oh, do I play along? Oh, I don't really know what to do. Because then I'm just like, how do I get out of this? Oh my God. And the worst bit was as well. So I have a friend, uh, Debbie, who works in the theatre. And we'll go out a lot and like, she will just bump into people she knows. And everyone's like, Debbie, oh my God. And then they'll, oh, go, darling. Up, yeah, and they'll go up and give her a big like thespy hug or whatever. But then when we went into this salon thing, they all went up to her and they're like, Debbie and I was like are they doing that because they're in character or are they doing that because they're actors and in real life they know it's Debbie and I just I was it like my brain was just breaking so I just had to get I was like I don't know what reality I'm in right now I need to get out of this room it's too confusing <laughs> so maybe yeah, yeah may, maybe it was a good idea we didn't go to the Tate late the Dardaris Tate late because if that was bad enough imagine what it would be with a Dada flex. Oh, yeah. Mm, <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, so, as I say, none of these guys could get on with each other. They were just gunning each other constantly. Um, they had entire publications dedicated to just gunning each other. But it is also important to point out as well, because I've done a very potted history of Dada here, that also, by the kind of uh, 20s era of Dada, it had really evolved to incorporate all different kinds of art it's not all just sound poetry that's clearly the bit that has just has stayed with us the most because it's just the the most traumatizing but like (laughs) yeah it's it's so and when you see what some of the artists actually did i mean yeah there's it really did take in every kind of medium even ones that were not traditional yeah previously so it really it, it kind of covered arts crafts graphic design installation yeah absolutely so you had like collage you had found object arts obviously there was so many zines you had film you also had other types of poetry right so like not the kind of sound poems but you would have things where you would cut out words in a magazine and then shake it up and then you know sort of like pull them out one by one and start to generate uh poems like that which actually I think really interestingly is a lot of how David Bowie wrote his songs. Yeah. Now, obviously, 
David Bowie had a good editorial line. <laughs> it wasn't just any old shit that came out. Yeah. But he that's a lot of how David Bowie wrote his lyrics. And um, it kind of reminds me of... You get those fridge magnets, don't you? Where yeah. people get to make up shit on the fridge. I mean, like... that's, that is exactly... That's pure, like, that's come straight from, from Dada. Yeah. So I was interested to find out that some artists were like... They were Dada artists, but they were working in, like, ceramics and in textiles and yeah. stuff. So it's it's interesting how far, and I guess you wouldn't it wouldn't be so obvious when you look at what they made, but I guess they were part of that movement, and the ideas must have kind of driven them to do things in slightly different ways, yeah, and, and just stuff like that. So also, like interestingly, I just found this out the other day because it was a uh, David Bowie's birthday. But actually, interestingly, Marcel Duchamp was David Bowie's favorite artist. Really? Right, so he was clearly like very, very influenced okay. by yeah. by Dardaris, and yeah, they were working in all sorts of mediums. Wasn't there? There was a female. She escaped my mind. There was a female Dardaris artist who created a furry teapot or something, wasn't there? That's or a furry teapot. Dora, oh, is it Dora Maar or Meret Oppenheim? It's one of those two. She's in that slightly crossover period where Dada starts to slightly blur into surrealism. Oh, let's see, because. Merritt Oppenheim fur cup. Yeah. So yeah, I think people traditionally say that she's a surrealist rather right. than Dada. But I mean if you look at her stuff, I would say that it all is it, it all is quite Dada. In and that there she is... takes objects <clears throat> and makes them sort of she takes them fully out of context by doing something weird to them. In those avant garde art movements as well, there is a lot of cross and mm. ebb and flow, and like, so um, I'm perfectly willing to admit that she's probably more surrealist than she is Dardarist, yeah. but there's a lot of like, Marcel Duchamp was a famous Dardarist, but he was also lots of other things. Like, he pops up in lots yeah. of other art movements, and you get um, Breton popping up in the uh, yeah. Dardarist, but also is clearly like a surrealist. And It's a bit like I saw, so when I was looking up some poets who were moving around in those circles at the time, like, you see lots of writers who wouldn't be strictly put into like Dardai's poetry mm-hmm. that they they basically they, they were creating their own literary genre so you had people like Ezra Pound T.S. Eliot William Carlos Williams and people like that who were they actually moved in quite similar circles and kind of chanced upon each other and like loads of Dardaists went to um Gertrude Stein's salon in Paris and she isn't Dada I don't I can't remember exactly what like what Lit- like what literary movement you put her in but you know pick- ev- everyone seemed to they're go to her house around, yeah they're all I'd hanging around to, with each other i would love to be at gertrude stein's house it sounds great i mean that's basically what that woody allen film is about like they go to gertrude stein's house in midnight in paris oh um, i do want to watch midnight it's in paris. quite good it's quite i mean it's all I mean, right because i have to pay for it that i'm not watching it i, I think that's I, th- I also think it was on netflix for ages but i'm like you do you remember we were having that conversation the other day you have to be in a very particular mind frame to watch Woody Allen films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not... I think it was you that said it. I'm just not going to be... It, I don't want to just put it on after work. Like, yeah, it's not something you want to just relax to. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let's relax to an incredibly neurotic main character. Yeah. Um, so, like, because of all this, especially things like the found objects and, you know, the performance art and the choreography, weird, like, choreography and stuff like that, mm. Dada is seen as the first ever conceptual art movement. And we'll yeah. get onto that more um, and about why that's really important kind of later on. But I think it's worth just saying, it, you know, it was the first ever kind of, like, conceptual art movement. So I think quite a lot... <sighs> 
really in art history has been written about the kind of important Dardarist men, such as uh, people like Duchamp. And actually in this episode, I would much rather focus on the women of Dada, mm. who until very recently have just been completely like written out of art history. In a quite overtly sexist way, actually, when you look back at some Dada writings and stuff, yeah. like male Dadaists uh, kind of position on women was not great, given that they were trying to re-establish the world order. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a bit hypocritical. I mean, it's terrible. And actually, this is uh, something that I'll go on to talk about in the next section. Yeah, they're trying to re-establish the world order. They're supposed to be these progressive mm. forefront thinkers. And they were deeply misogynistic. Yeah. Like, deep, like, troublingly misogynistic. And I'm sure, you know, there was a lot of it about at the time. Yeah. But this is some of, some of the stuff that I'm going to mention in the next bit is some of the most, like, naked... Yeah. Art misogyny. Do you know, like, even when we were in the first episode talking about Rosetti, like, obviously, he is, like, Mr. Problematic. <laughs> he is, like, fuckboy uh, extraordinaire. Yeah. But even he wasn't, like, as nakedly misogynistic as a lot of these ga- Dada guys were. And I yeah. think, like, you know, even he was more supportive of, like, Elizabeth Siddle's artwork than... Some of these people. Some of these guys I were. I saw a really interesting quote earlier uh, about this kind of obsession with the mechanised world and Dada's obsession with machinery and this writer I'll have to find his name and I'll include it on social media later but he said he was a Dadaist writer at the time and he said something like the machine is a man's daughter without a mother and that is why he loves her so much so it's this idea of like men can create life now or like men can mm. men can make things and it's it's a it, it's something to do with this like mechanization and cutting women out yeah uh, it was just like a really g- gross <laughs> yeah quote but i remember i read that earlier and i was like yeah this is exactly the kind of shit we were talking about with like the the men of dada are not great when they're it comes not to women. good and also like i mean this is kind of tangential but connected and it's all sort of happening mm. around the same ish period right you get futurism which is absolutely obsessed with like machinery mm. and machoism and stuff like that yeah and then although it's not all the same thing there are futurist movements in different countries and as we were saying with dada they can take on a little bit of a different flavor mm. Italian futurism goes explicitly fascist. Yeah. It becomes explicitly fascist art, which, you know, I think is, like, quite interesting. Yeah, there's something about this mix of, like, machinery and new age machoism that just becomes really toxic. Yeah. And I know that I, like, I've never really liked Italian futurism, to be honest, because it's, I guess it's just never really appealed to me. But yeah. like, actually, I saw, do you remember I told you, I saw that Italian futurist um, sculpture in the War Museum and it was like a 360 degree view of Mussolini's head. So it looked oh like a, it looked like a weird urn. <laughs> it was like his face, but the whole way round. I can't even explain. It was so strange. But I was, I looked and it was weird though, because you knew it was Mussolini straight yeah. away. Like when you saw it side on, you were like, that's his profile. Yeah. And then I looked at it and it's like... <laughs> Mussolini as like a Greek vase or something. Wow. I was like, what on earth? <laughs> um, but yeah. 
the woman I want to focus on because she is my favourite Dardarist artist full stop. Like, mm. she's not my favourite female Dardarist artist. She is my favourite Dardarist artist full stop. Same. Is Hannah Hock. Like, <laughs> she's I great. just think Hannah Hock's work is absolutely incredible. So she's best known for like her photo montage and uh, collage work and mixed medium work. Mm. So she used newspaper clippings and photos, but also like embroidery and paint and stuff like that to create works that uh, satirised the government, bourgeois society, and subverted kind of prevailing ideas of femininity. Yeah. Especially this idea that she's been like heavily associated with, which is like the idea of a new woman. Yeah, well, the Weimar Republic had this whole idea, didn't they, of like the new woman that they wanted, and she was very critical of that. Yeah. And, but also I think that there's like a... There's like a dichotomy because there's the new woman that the Weimar Weimar Republic wanted, but also it came under intense scrutiny. So, you know, these were women who would like vote and party and argue as if they were a man's equal. Yeah. Um, And it was, you know, that there is like a dichotomy between the leftover social norms and the kind of moving forward into the more modern era. Um, Mm. And a lot of her work focuses around these themes and I just think they're they're really really great there's a female Dadaist poet who we can like go into later when we talk about all the other women of Dada and she wrote a feminist manifesto in 1914 and her the the basic premise of the manifesto is women like you're kidding yourselves if you think you're equal to men we need to completely break the system down for this to work because all we're being given is the allowances that men are, are giving us to make us think we're equal so she has this whole thing where she's like oh so you've got a job now you're happy with that (laughs) she's like we have to do so much more than that we have to tear this whole thing down so um burn this bitch to the ground yeah i I just the women of dada were incredible yeah they were just surrounded by idiots absolute (laughs) douchebags like just complete and utter muppets yeah poor women (laughs) like Hock was born in Gotha, Germany in 1889. And so during the First World War, before the First World War, she actually like attended art school. So she has like a an art training, mm. um, an artist training. But during the First World War, she left school in order to go and work for the Red Cross doing, you know, stuff during the First World War. Mm. Stuff that the Red Cross needs to do. N- nurse shit. Nurse shit, Yeah. After that, she then returned to Berlin um, and continued studying in art school and actually ended up studying graphics, Mm -hmm. which is obviously really important if you kind of know her work. And Mm. That must have been quite a new thing at the time. It must have been an incredibly new thing. Um, So she studied that at the National Institute of the Museum of Arts and Crafts. And I think she also had this crafts background. And as you were saying earlier, Dada spanned a lot of things including Mm. like crafts yeah and i find that quite interesting because i it's weird but you feel like art and crafts are very separate in our Mm. society and we like view them very separately so like i know my mum in my mum's practice because she's an artist she actually works a lot with um abstract embroidery Mm. Which is is cool, but to me, I'm just like, but embroidery is a thing like your nan does. Mm. (laughs) Like, abstract's a thing that, like, artists do. Yeah. But, yeah, because it just feels so separate, uh, Mm. like, the crafts movement and kind of... 
I mean, obviously there are other artists that are doing it. Like yeah, Tracy Emin did yeah. loads of embroidery, and it's it's. What's that guy called that really scares me? Oh, God, really famous artist, dressed as like a little girl called Susan. Oh, um, Grace Grayson Perry. Grayson Perry. <laughs> <laughs> terrifies me uh, yeah his oh of all the yeah his his alter ego's really scary yeah. <laughs> she had a kind of like crafts background as well mm. so from 1916 to uh 1926 she actually worked in the handicrafts department for a publisher mm-hmm. and she designed dress embroidery lace and handiwork designs for the lady magazine <laughs> and the practical berlin woman mm-hmm. and this professional work obviously really influenced her artistic work as i say she incorporated embroidery into um some of her collage work and also interestingly i think working in a publisher's a lot of the raw materials that she got for creating her collages she literally just stole from work so Mm. like old books old magazines things like that Mm. because she was around obviously like printing presses and stuff quite often Mm. a little bit i think to elaborate on the kind of like bullshit men were up to she was actually in a relationship with raul hoosman from 1915 to 1922 and he is also a very famous uh artist and Mm. did a lot of uh, (laughs) the sound poems that we keep gunning (laughs) um and he was just absolutely awful to her so he was Mm. very physically abusive he was very emotionally and mentally abusive he belittled her constantly so she actually she wanted to get married and he would berate her for her like bourgeois ideals for wanting to get married and just being like that you know like that's so backwards thinking but at the same time had a wife Mm. who he was still married to and like didn't break up with um he was yeah he was violent towards her he said that he um would often fantasize about murdering her like that's how sort of heated their relationship got and that you know that's sort of doing it down And he was also, like, he belittled her art constantly, which I just think is incredible when you listen to his shit sound poetry (laughs) and you look at her really quite great um, collages. collages. That's just kind of a little flavour of of how bad the men were. And I think, you know, Frida Frida and Diego had a very turbulent relationship and Diego did it, but he supported her. Like, Diego did a lot of very horrible things to Frida, but he supported her art. So this guy would basically say to her all the time that he was the only true artist in the relationship. Um, and she, and should she, should, give up. she should just give up and take a second job because yeah. actually her number one priority in this world is to support his vision. Yeah, for those and... of you who can't see, because it's a podcast, I'm rolling my eyes a lot at this. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> but also, didn't you say he wrote something because he was made to wash the dishes four times in his life or something yes. and he, he, he wrote a, a massive political tract about how much he hates her because yeah, yeah, she made yeah. him wash the dishes yes basically like he would not stop about him having to like wash the dishes and this actually ended up 
spurring her to write the uh, short story, The Painter, in 1920. And the subject of The Painter is an artist who is thrown into an intense spiral crisis when his wife asks him to do the dishes. Like, that is, like, that's the crux of the kind of, um, the, the story. Yeah. So he was just awful. And he also spent a lot of time, as well as saying, like, she was not a very good artist um, and that she should give it up, support him. He also uh, said, really, your only priority on this earth should be to have children. Mm. Uh, my children that's what you're there for so this is just like yeah and actually hannah was she was a kind of new quote-unquote new woman or not that this is new but she had a lot of abortions Mm. um so even though she did she did fall pregnant to him twice uh she had abortions she was also bisexual Mm -hmm. and androgynous and did have um once she left him finally great Mm. ended up having many relationships with women i think mm. so yeah once she was free of him she she was doing all right but yeah. yeah he was um he was really really awful and hannah was treated really badly not just by the man that she was in an intimate like sexual relationship with she was treated incredibly badly by all of the german dadaists so she was the only female german dadaist Mm. And for instance, they would not let her exhibit at the first International Dada Fair in 1920. Mm. She was treated terribly by the press because obviously she stuck out like a sore thumb for her like androgyny and her uh, sort of in your face art and things like that. So, yeah. But she was really belittled by the press. So even when she died at 88, one publication ran with the headline, the bob the bobhead muse of the men's club Aww. so she was really like yeah she was really um it's like she basically pioneered photo montage yeah another though i like i saw another headline that was like the good girl of dada oh, with her scissors sake. and it's just like yeah she pioneered an entirely new type of art yeah she did it without any of the support of other artists around her she she in and we'll go on to this in like the legacy of dada but i think a lot of her work has gone on to shape the punk aesthetic um a lot of like mm. graphic design things like that like she is an incredibly influential artist and even at her death at 88 she's still being belittled by the press mm. and she's still being like kind of like bullied and and harassed obviously she's had a kind of renaissance in later years and i think yeah. women talk about her now and we we know about her and we understand how important she was as a cultural figure mm. but you never learn about her in school no like, i never learned about hannah hawk in school in fact the yeah the only dada artists i learned about were francis picabia and marcel duchamp yeah they were the only two yeah so she also by the later years ended up having to go into hiding because the nazis hated her like she yeah. was so subversive and she was so I was surprised she was allowed to stay in Germany, though, because yeah. I read that she basically moved to some somewhere really quiet she, outside of Berlin, some tiny suburb, and just and had they to... just. But I'm I'm amazed that they just let her. Yeah, they didn't actually harass her. Um, so yeah. her most famous painting, and I think the one we're probably going to look at now, 
is called Cut With The Kitchen Knife Through The Last Weimer Beer Belly Cultural Epoch in Germany. <laughs> That's a bit of a <laughs> mouthful. And so I'm just going to get the painting up now and we can kind of have a look at it. Oh, this is so cool. This is her most famous painting and it, a painting, it's not a painting, it's a collage. This mm. is her most famous collage. And it's very cool. So there's a lot going on in here. Yeah. Like it just bursts out of the page. So you've got cutouts of Dardarist artists, some mm-hmm. with really big heads. That's um, Albert Einstein. Yep, you've got Einstein. Yeah. I believe you've also got Marx on here somewhere. I think there's a Karl Marx. Yeah. I think he's down at the bottom. Again, it's a little bit like a Where's Wally yeah. <laughs> kind of people. She's also included a teeny tiny little cutout of her head in the bottom right hand corner somewhere. Yeah. So there's a few things going on. There's like the meaning of it is something to do with she's got like almost it's like a collage of slightly two halves, isn't it? Because there's the bit up at the top, which I think has a picture of the Kaiser. Mm-hmm. And there's Oh, that's it. Look, and there's the Kaiser and she's used to like a gymnast as his moustache. Oh, and she's put the anti-Dada on that side, die anti-Dada. And then on the other side, she's got Dada Dada. and she's got Albert Einstein, who I guess was, he was known as being a very prominent scientific thinker at the time. You've got machinery. So she's still got this. um, So there's a lot of like these newfangled machines. Yeah. So she's obviously got a lot of like a feeling of affinity with like machinery yeah but you've also got look there's marks there's Lenin. oh yeah there we go and they're kind of i like interestingly i don't actually know much about hannah hock's sort of politics mm. other than the way she lived her life mm. but interestingly they're more on the kind of i guess the anti-dada side yeah or, yeah I mean, it's really in terms of like its composition, it is very confused. If you zo- when you look at it as a whole and zoom out, it's this big. It's all, at first you think it doesn't have a structure or anything. It just looks like a load of random stuff. Yeah. And then the more you look, the more you see that she's well, everything's really layered. So it's one of those works where she's put loads of tiny little easter eggs in yeah so there's so much detail in it and it sort of does have two halves you've got the kind of top right hand bit and the bottom left hand they're sort of divided mm-hmm. but there's also like other dardarist artists mm. in here but she's also mixed it up with like if you look there you have uh, a kind of female Baby? form i think that's a woman i think that's a, i think that's a Woman with roles. Uh-huh. So you've got a kind of like, there's a mixture of sort of more glamorous women that are chopped into it and women who are not necessarily seen as like, mm. what's the word I'm looking for? Conventionally, Conventionally attractive. attractive. That's exactly what I'm looking for. But then you also have like men's heads on ballerinas' bodies mm. and it's very, it's very jarring to look at. It's very subversive. It's You can see that she is disruptive and that Mm. she's trying to be disruptive. And one of the things that I find sort of baffling about this when I look at it, I really enjoy this this collage, Mm. but one of the things I find sort of baffling about this when I look at it is like, she did this by hand. Yeah. It looks like it was done on a computer. Yeah. And she did this by hand. Like the... 
I, I don't think we can kind of overstate the um, level to which she was a pioneer. Yeah. And the fact that she would have to have, you know, sat there with all of these different cuttings out and arranged them and rearranged them and decided what would go where and built up layers and layers of detail mm. in a way that is really easy to do now on something like Photoshop. But actually... Because you can kind of like put things in and then just go, actually, no, undo or whatever. Mm-hmm. But once she's stuck that down, that's like she can't take it back off again. So I've always found this really impressive with collage, actually. Having the big picture in your head of how all of those bits fit together is really impressive. Yeah. And especially in lots of her other work as well. Some of it is a lot simpler than this one. This mm-hmm. one's got a huge amount going on. Some of them have a lot few, like not as many different cut out pieces yeah. but the fact that she has put them together in a way that it's just it, yeah it's created this whole other a whole new picture yeah is is just yeah it's incredible it's really impressive her work is is very very impressive and mm. um yeah as you say this it's not all that busy there's some simpler ones so you can see in this picture this is called <laughs> Heads of State. Um, and so she's got two German politicians in here in their swimsuits, kind of like floundering around. But this is what I was talking about, about that mixed medium work where mm. she's incorporating embroidery into it. There may be a bit of drawing in there. It's hard mm. to tell from the picture that we're looking at. Obviously, she's um, cutting things up. Yeah, sort of chopping things up Mm. and it's just all in all turns into a really impressive sort of piece of work yeah now i do really like anna hock i've always been a fan it is my favorite dada dada's work and i also think it's the work that as i say has gone on to have the most influence i agree and i think the the actual the idea of collage i feel like it started with things like photo montage but inspired people to chop bits out and pull them out of context and put them in new things in other ways so when you think of something like i don't know like blue jam or cassette boy where they're cutting bits of news out and putting them back together to make a whole new audio track yeah where like david cameron's saying something completely different just by chopping all those so it's it's sort of a bit of both isn't it it's a bit like the kind of the dada poems where you're chopping a newspaper up and pulling words out but it's also what hannah hock's doing when she's cutting up images and changing the meaning of them completely yeah yeah so as i say i really like hannah hock's work but i do think we'd be kind of remiss for not mentioning some of the like more problematic stuff and i think yeah if we kind of come into we come into today with our brains and i think to a certain extent it is hard to put your understanding and your morals onto people who were operating in the past Mm. um, because it was a very different sort of era to be operating in. But she did do a series of works for an ethnographic museum. Mm. A lot of them are untitled. The most famous one I think is perhaps called The Indian Princess. Let me just double check that. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know exactly the one you mean. Oh, sorry, it's called The Indian Dancer, not The Indian Princess. Yeah. And so I actually had to look up what a sort of, like, like ethnographic museum was. Mm. I wasn't sure what it was, but 
it it seems to be a thing that was quite popular in the past where you would have museums that were dedicated to weird like i guess artifacts i guess you still have i mean the british museum yeah <laughs> they were you know dedicated to different cultures mm. and things that they'd sort of been taken from other cultures mm. but one of the things that these pictures and these collages do in this period is they take sort of african art and they also take female the female body and the female form and they kind of splurge them together Mm. and it's supposed to be a commentary on the way women were othered in society while you know hannah hock was making these these Mm. works but they don't exactly deal with the way race plays into that in a very sensitive in a very sensitive way at all yeah and again it was a different time. This this was made in 1929. Mm. But it does perpetuate the kind of colonial mindset of, you know, Africans and African artists being like primitive and other and... Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's using that... I, I guess it's hard to tell because she's clearly playing with that notion. She's doing that on purpose to make a point about like females in... Yeah. Germany at the time or, you know, in sort of Western cultures. But she's not, I, she doesn't really seem to be dealing with it, I think, with the sensitivity and maybe like the weight that it deserves. Mm. And I think it, yeah, I, I don't want to do these down, but mm. I think it's worth talking about the kind of more problematic works as well. Yeah. I think also, especially, do you remember the great exhibition in Paris or is it the World's Fair in Paris or something is where a lot of artists so a lot of cubists um as well as Dadaists would have seen a lot of African art for the first time which is why Picasso uh, you know lost his mind over some African masks Mm -hmm. and went and painted the Demoiselle d'Avignon with with those African masks and stuff so I think that yeah I think you're right it's like it's it's something that they (laughs) I guess it's like a new thing and it's a new exciting thing, but they haven't uh, learned how to deal with it sensitively. Yeah. Yet. And also I don't think they're like, I mean, on, in some ways, I think, she's say, better one. than say some of the, she's better than say some of like the, the cubist stuff and, yeah. and things like that, because she is in some way trying to. She's aware she, of, and she's engaging with some ideas more proactively than i feel like yeah picasso kind of just in that painting he's kind of just gone here are some prostitutes here are some african masks aren't i controversial yeah whereas she's yeah like in that indian dancer one the headdress is made out of cutlery and things and that woman's face is apparently she was quite a famous film star at the time so she's trying to like comment on I guess some bigger ideas about women in society and stuff, but she's not. I think what I'm trying to get at is she's not. Yeah. She's trying to, she's trying to comment on like women in society, but she's, it doesn't feel like she is really tackling head on the kind of dodgy colonialist, like Mm. roots and, and politics of where a lot of her thinking's coming from. Yeah. And she's 
Yeah. And I think that's especially... I think she's better than some of the others. That's especially mm. true with some of the others. But she's also... Like, she's making this comment about women in the Weimar Republic. But she's not, I think, really taking on board what it would be like for a woman in one of the colonies either. Yeah. Um, she's using them as props. She's not actually mm. trying to deal with the root of their oppression in any way, shape or form. And I think that's... Yeah. That's where it starts to get a bit problematic. I have to wait another, like, 60 years for s- some intersectional feminism to come along. And... <laughs> <laughs> so that's my sort of, like, rambling thoughts on the more problematic yeah. uh, Hannah Hopp Although, what I would say about all of them is, despite the problematic ideas, they're, like... They are incredibly good, like they're good collages. Mm-hmm. They're like, and I think another woman that I want to give a shout out to is um, oh. a woman who I literally just found out about today, and I'm now obsessed with. She's a legend, and that is the Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. Yeah, she's just brilliant. I mean, you said you had some quite fun anecdotes about oh, the Baroness. They're, they're incredible. The one, so a few of the things that you need to know about her to start with. Uh, she started out as a vaudeville performer and actor. So she wasn't born an aristocrat. She had a number of marriages. She married a penniless baron, who was the Baron von Freytag Loringhoven. I believe she helped him to fake his own death. She, she helped one of her husbands she fake helped his own one death. Of her, so one of her husbands, she helped him fake his own death and then they both ran away to the United States. And then he abandoned her and went to some like, but fuck nowhere place, like Poughkeepsie or something. <laughs> like, I don't know where. Yeah. And she actually ended up going to New York, which is how I think she came across like Marcel Duchamp. Right. Because cause... he would have been knocking around in New York as well. So, and she was hanging out in Greenwich Village. So... When I say, like, Greenwich Village had its, like, RT heyday before, um, it was like a, it was a little Dada hotspot. One uh, magazine said of her, she was a living Dada artwork. Her willingness to be ugly and absurd is much of the charm. Here was a lithe, sexually liberated woman taking flapper-esque fashion and distorting it, wearing tin can bras... Or tar- carrying her tiny mangy dog like an accessory <laughs> to poke fun at upper crust notions of breeding. So you would never know, like, she literally did, she she lived and breathed Dada every day. Also, like, you didn't don't know you what think it's she incredible? Was... Don't you think yeah. it's incredible that she was like Paris Hilton in before Paris Hilton? <laughs> like, she's like, I've got this tiny little mangy dog with me. And I don't think Paris Hilton is trying to make like a subversive point about like upper class breeding. But, <laughs> <laughs> but she like she would wear all kinds of crazy stuff so she would yeah she'd wear a a tin can bra she um she wore postage stamps on her face as beauty marks um a lot of the time she was getting arrested because she'd leave the house like (laughs) semi-naked she would wear hats decorated with like dangling spoons and feathers and she just she literally like lived and breathed a kind of dada sort of mentality so i i found out that um she she was supposedly 
credited with coming up with the idea of found objects because she, on her way to getting married... Oh, I need to find this story. Oh, I, this is the plumbing pipe. Is this the... Yeah, she found something on the floor, which was like oh, an no, iron... Was a ring. Yeah. An, an iron ring on the floor, which she decided to use and but it it was credited as being like the first found object but she had a plumbing pipe that she installed and just called it god yeah. and that was like her installation so she was really into the, but also she was so she was doing all of this stuff which leads us into one of art history's biggest uh potential cons potential cons but she was also like just incredibly sexually liberated yeah. she was Apparently she was like pursuing, uh, she was, she was often like in love with gay men and would like pursue them actively. (laughs) That's quite problematic. Yeah. So one of the fun like stories I found out about her is, yeah, she was like incredibly sexually liberated and apparently like she, so she had this weird relationship with Marcel Duchamp. So she was like in love with him, but she was jealous of him. But she also just really wanted to fuck him. Yeah. And she was not afraid to let him know. And apparently Marcel Duchamp was just terrified of her. And like... she was actually quite intense. Yeah. I think that would be really funny. Um, yeah, she's, she, apparently, but she, she really, she develops this like kind of very, I guess what we would now say in more enlightened times is she had this like incredibly kind of queer, yeah, very fluid persona. So she didn't really, as far as I can tell, she never really defined herself or like defined her sexuality in any particular way. But in a way that is like, so she was like peak Dada because she was like, I'm not categorizing myself. There is no meaning. There is no context. I'm just doing me every day. And that means that sometimes I will turn up wearing a bra made out of soup cans. And sometimes that means I might be naked. And sometimes it means I might make a pass at you, even though I know you're gay. So, you know, <laughs> it's all happening all the time. Just just let me wash over you. I'm just this like, yeah. So she, she, she definitely took the Dada life very seriously. seriously. More than any little... Di- I would say, you know, we all, so we might all talk about the Marcel Duchamps and the Tristan Zaras and whatever, but, you know, did they turn up wearing a soup can bra? No. No. Did they risk getting tetanus and booby cuts <laughs> for their art? Did they risk losing a nipple? No. Hi, Frida. Hi, Frida. Hi, Frida. <laughs> she has decided that she wants to get involved You're in You're on the... my notes. You're on my notes. Stop it. Butthole. <laughs> yeah so she's just like a very fun woman and she sounds like um she would be great fun at a party and kind of my favorite slash most enraging thing that i learned today is about the curious case of Armut and who Armut was. And this leads on very nicely from what we've just spoken about. So for listeners who are quite familiar with Marcel Duchamp, they will know that one of Marcel Duchamp's most famous pieces is a piece entitled The Fountain, which is essentially a urinal that's been mounted onto something. And he basically, well, as the story goes, he essentially um, submitted this urinal 
to an exhibition of the Society of Independent Artists in 1917 at their first annual exhibition. So the fountain is an incredibly important piece of artwork. Mm. It is one of the most famous found objects, artworks in the world, although it's not, as we say, like it's not the first one. And actually famously, Marcel Duchamp had the uh, wheel. Bicycle wheel. The bicycle wheel. There's that weird bottle rack. Yeah. So he'd been doing this before, but this is, I think it was one that became incredibly famous. And actually, so... At the time it was given for this exhibition, it was rejected. And then I think it was just the original one was thrown away. But it ended up being reproduced like over 50 times. And I think it's the one piece of artwork that's like most synonymous with Dada in people's Mm. heads. And yeah, it really, you know, it's a hugely influential piece of art. However, there is now a growing idea in art history that it was not... Marcel Duchamp's piece so it wasn't his idea idea yeah so it's a little bit murky and we don't know the ins and outs of it but it is true that in his writings to his sister Marcel Duchamp himself said that he received the urinal as a gift from a female contemporary of his who would go under the pseudonym R. Mutt. Yeah, Richard and, Mutt. Yeah, and she was uh, like an androgynous masculine woman who would go under this pseudonym and, and that's where he got the urinal from to begin with. And it's also true. So you could then argue that whoever this R. Mutt person was, they sent the urinal to him as maybe like a bit of a practical joke but then he had the idea to submit it to the exhibition Mm. however it gets a little bit murkier when you find out that alfred stiglitz actually wrote about the urinal that a young woman sent a large porcelain urinal on a pedestal to the independence and this is that art exhibition that it was first exhibited to So it was not Marcel Duchamp who kind of delivered this urinal. Now, Marcel Duchamp, in his defence, said that he didn't want the board to know that it was him submitting the urinal because A, he was very famous and B, he was a board member. So he wanted it to be submitted to this exhibition Mm. without the kind of name Marcel Duchamp attached to it. And so you can take both pieces of evidence as just kind of almost like coincidence. So he just had a woman deliver it. Mm. And he wrote in his uh, letter that a woman sent, it sent, sent this urinal to his house and that's how he got hold of it. But it's also true that Marcel Duchamp never came forward for years as the kind of person who submitted the, the urinal. Mm. And it wasn't until Andre Breton attributed it to Marcel Duchamp that he then came forward and was like, yes, it was me and started Mm. making loads of reproductions of it. Yeah. And essentially, yeah, and and it became one of his most famous pieces of work. It's not clear whether... Well, firstly, it's not clear who our muck could be. We don't Mm. know who this woman is. A lot of people have hypothesised that it is the uh, Baroness. 
And the reason why is because, as you stated before, she was already working in the medium of medium of found objects. Um, and she was probably the first found object artist. She had a affinity with, uh, like, toilet humour. And mm-hmm. what I saw somewhere described as, like, scatolo- scatological art or scatological art, which I think is art to do with toilets. It's just like... so she already there was you know there are things that led you to believe it it could be her but there was also another sort of strange thing which is when the fountain was submitted under the name armart one of the documents that it was submitted with had a address on it that you can just about make out in the original photo of the urinal and that address was known to be a place where louise norton lived and she was a woman who contributed an essay to the um art and dada journal Mm. so she was kind of around like dadaism so there's also a hypothesis that the woman could have been her but i think we have always just unquestioningly said that the fountain, the urinal, was a Marcel Duchamp piece. Mm. And a lot of art historians still are very much wedded to that and they won't entertain the idea that it was possibly somebody else who came up with the idea and submitted it to um, this art board. Now, it could also be the case that maybe he worked in collaboration with Mm -hmm. female artists. But what I do think you get quite often is people sort of brush this under the rug by saying, oh, well, if you're worried about who found the um, urinal to begin with, you're completely misunderstanding the piece and you're you're misunderstanding like found object art. Mm. And for me, I think that's a bit of a write-off because I actually think that like in conceptual art, as you said, all there is is the idea. Mm. So if you're not... You know, if you're taking credit for an idea that's not yours, there is an issue with that. And the fact that it's gone on to be one of the most famous sort of like Dada works in Mm. history. And it was potentially the Baroness who created it or another Mm. Dadaist woman. We don't know if it was them. I think we should be clear about that. We don't know if it was them. But there there are a lot of things that when they start to marry up, begin to look quite you know like there might be something to this rumor yeah and also when you think about some of Duchamp's other ready-mades they tend to be yeah they're not as in your face and they're usually some kind of very familiar object that is made to seem quite threatening so that bottle rack with its like really sharp edges or um he got an iron and put nails on it and stuff whereas I feel like that urinal is a different kind of statement. Do you know mm. what I mean? So, I mean, in fairness, we, like, like you say, we don't know. And it might well be that Duchamp, it, it was his idea. But do you remember I said to you, the idea of like, I guess, a Dadaist woman submitting a urinal as a found object and saying that this is a piece of art does seem, it does seem like more Dada for a woman to do it. Especially because, I mean, I suppose it would be more of a taboo object for a woman to do it because they don't see them because they're in men's toilets. But, like, that whole idea of putting something that men piss into on a pedestal and saying it's art... Yeah. ...is quite... 
I mean, I think basically, I, re- I really, I basically just really want it to be a woman yeah. because I think, I actually think there's more. I want it to be the Baroness. I want it to be the Baroness because I feel like it, it's an even better artistic statement if yeah. it would, if it, if, if it was a Baroness, then yeah. Because if it was, if it was um, Marcel Duchamp, it would be like, oh, I'm so controversial. I've put a toilet on the, and you're like, yeah, I know, but you know, if it, if a woman did it, it would be like, this is. Um, a men's giant piss pot and what is art up until this point but a giant piss pot for men what even is society up until this point but a giant piss pot for men so I would love it to be a woman who did it but who knows so that's kind of like my last little tidbit I think was the kind of curious case of who is Armut I was trying to find out what the meaning of Armut is and nobody knows like obviously Richard Mutt is the pseudonym mm. but people are trying to find out why that is the name or like what what it could mean and there's there's all sorts of theories I think a lot of them are a stretch so I've heard one which is that Mutt is like basically some kind of slang for cunt right I've heard before which if it was the Baroness would make a lot of sense yeah <laughs> that seems very on brand for her um I've also heard that if you say it in uh, do you know no but that doesn't work some people are saying that our mutt if said in French is our mou or mute art but that's not how you'd say it in French you'd say air mute which is not mute art so I don't believe that one some people are saying it's something to do with nausea and nausea at the the world at war and stuff Basically, no one knows. Nobody knows. Um, so it is one of art's unsolved mysteries. But um, yeah, so that's kind of like, I feel like we've been talking for quite a lot, but we, we tried to do an entire art movement in this episode as yeah. opposed to like a piece of work or an artist. So there is a lot to cover. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed Arda. I think I, to be... <laughs> I'm going to con the sound poetry again. <laughs> Hannah Hawke's uh, collage work I really like. Yeah. The sound poetry I could definitely live without. I think yeah. I enjoy very early Dada, like the Cabaret Voltaire stuff, yeah. as much more of a concept than actually having to listen or see. <laughs> listen to it, I'm glad it. they did it. Yeah. And I'm glad it got them to where they needed to get to. But I also think it's funny, like one of the things, like when we're sat around the house researching and looking into this art movement, in a lot of situations with Dada, we find ourselves in like hysterics. Mm. And you know, that in itself is quite a valuable thing. It, it certainly can move you, whether that's to revulsion, yeah. <laughs> or like it certainly has the ability to move you. Yeah. We probably don't need to talk about this because we've just said it so much for the episode, but the legacy of Dada, like Dada has massively shaped the world we live in. Yeah. From, like I say, the punk aesthetic, the like collaging of punk. The the idea of of... art having some kind of big concept. Yeah. The idea of art not necessarily having to be something that you've made yourself, but the fact is you've had an idea and found stuff to make that idea a reality. Um, I... I do want to um, just list a few other unsung women of Dada before we like kind of wrap it up. So if you want other female Dadaists to explore, yeah, as we say, Hannah Hawke is our 
favourite. She's great. Baroness Elsa is just incredible. She's just great. I just saw everything here. She just would go around making up new words. Uh, Phallus pistol. (laughs) Phallus pistol. Also her nonsense words are better than the boys' nonsense words. Yeah, spinster lollipop. Spinster lollipop is not flibberdup or whatever he called his tree. Exactly. You know? Sophie Torber, who we talked about, who married Jean Arp, she was actually one of the... She was a real sort of polymath, so she, like, she was into... She 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 did Dadaist dance, but she also did Dadaist, um, like, drawing and painting, and but then also textile. So she was actually, like... That was... She was one of the few... This is a... Let's not overlook this. She was one of the few Dadaists who had who held down a day job, as did Hannah Hoch. Let's yeah. not forget that. The two women of Dada who held down day jobs. And she she taught weaving and textile arts uh, in Zurich. And she made these like abstract textiles. And there's a New Yorker called Clara Tice, who did these very erotic drawings that actually got her... The police came round on, <laughs> on like basically on obscenity charges to to close to to seize all their drawings because she she just exhibited them and it caused a bit of a furore. Oh, and she also claims to be Claritize claims to be the first woman to get a bob haircut in New York. So there's that big claim. Mm-hmm. Mina Loy is the one I mentioned earlier who had the, who wrote that feminist manifesto about like if you if you want to be equal with men you're kidding yourself and you yeah. need to dist- you need to raise society to the ground and start again she is she is pretty cool and she was a bit she was another polymath she like drew and painted but her main thing was writing so she wrote a lot of dardarist poetry but it was a lot less abrasive than some of the stuff we've been talking about like some it's it's weird but kind of enjoyable yeah (laughs) yeah here we go like here's a few lines spawn of fantasies silting the appraisable Pig Cupid his rosy snout, rooting erotic garbage. There was another one about... um... You're right, yeah, it is, because it's not... There are actual words. Yeah, yeah. Beatrice Wood was a yet another polymath. She's known as the mama of Dada, and she... She was another one who was, like, into ceramics. She did all the drawing and painting and stuff, but she was into ceramics, and um, apparently... Beatrice Wood was in a love triangle with Marcel Duchamp and uh, Rocher, which actually inspired the film Jules Egin, oh. the French film about yeah about the love triangle. So, like that was actually uh, yeah. So, um, I think Jules Egin was actually a short story first. Um, so yeah, basically that 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 Dada love triangle inspired the film, and. Um, Let's not forget, actually, we mentioned her briefly. Suzanne Duchamp was Marcel Duchamp's sister and an artist in her own right. Yeah. And gets forgotten about, but it's kind of having a bit of a renaissance now that she um, she married another Dardarist called Jean Crotty. And, um... <laughs> oh yeah, this was something I wanted to mention. Marcel gave her a wedding gift. It was... And instructions for an unhappy ready-made. Oh, great. <laughs> which involved 
suspending a geometry textbook on the porch and letting the wind and rain gradually tear it apart. Thanks, bro. I actually Happy just needed, wedding. I just needed some new plates, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to like, so we've talked about the two, I guess two of the most prolific and famous of the kind of women of Dada, but there are yeah there are loads and um from all over the world and they actually i would say more than the men they really explored a huge variety of media more so than i would say like Carl Schwitter, who really just no. devoted to Kurt Schwitter. <laughs> he was like, I found my niche, I'm sticking to my niche. <laughs> and it's going to take me around the world, baby. <laughs> Isle of Man, here we come. Me and my bourgeois face. Yeah. We're off to conquer international markets. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, whereas the women were like doing ceramics and doing textiles and drawing and writing poetry and writing manifestos. Oh, also, fun fact before we go, because we did talk about Gertrude Stein, so I wanted to mention... Because you, you were saying that there's, like, the whole Dada way of life went as far as Dada cookbooks Yeah, and, stuff. and Dada food. And there's two instances of, like, surrealism or Dada-esque food. Lee Miller, who was the kind of muse, studio partner, lover of... Uh, Man Ray, the photographer. Also, yet another one who pioneered a whole load of techniques and Man Ray gets all the credit. Mm -hmm. She was hot and clever and talented. She was a model before she became a photographer and an artist. So she, in her later life, she was a war correspondent and there's actually a famous photo of her taking a bath in Hitler's bath. Oh, wow. This was literally hours before he committed suicide. Wow. Yeah. So they broke it. So this was like... Uh, she was going around Germany. She was taking some of the first photos of concentration camps, taking photos of people around Germany as the Nazi regime was crumbling. They broke into Hitler's apartment and she had a bath in his bath because she was muddy from the concentration yeah, camps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So there's a photo of her doing that. That's fucking ballsy. Of all, his, the people's, his... of all the people's houses you don't want to break into, I feel like Hitler's like... Also though, right, there's a weird thing which has just occurred to me. He has, there is a picture of him on the side of the bath, which means that he used to have a bath with a picture of himself uh, on the side of the bath. How weird is that? Uh, I mean, uh, of course. Uh, <laughs> I would say a, 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 a mad dictator of all the people who would take a bath with a picture of themselves. And also of all of Hitler's crimes, probably the, like, the least one to worry about. I can but let, it is creepy. I can let that one slide, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> in the greatest scheme of things uh, but Lee Miller um, speaking of surreal like Dada-esque and surrealist food later in her life she became an alcoholic and kind of went a little bit crazy but she used to serve people surrealist dinners where she'd make them like blue spaghetti and she'd serve them cauliflower painted to look like nipples wow so I'm not sure if that's how my cauliflower serves to me but okay <laughs> yeah also blue spaghetti i'm hoping that came with some kind of a sauce and they weren't like <laughs> what is it what it's, you... it's blue flavored so it would you... be like blue raspberry flavored <laughs> spaghetti <laughs> i guess like yeah you could color it with like squid ink and stuff i feel like you get black spaghetti don't you that's been colored with squid ink. made it blue i don't really want to know i don't want to know but um the other great one is gertrude stein's lifelong partner um alice b topless 
Let's just also have a shout out for one of like art and culture's most like baller lesbian power couples. Yeah. Because <laughs> Gertrude Stein just basically had this salon where anyone and everyone turned up in Paris. I was saying to you, Alice B. Toklas, I feel like unfairly to her, became a bit of a sort of wag who ended up just uh, entertaining the literally the other wives and girlfriends and muses of, of these artists. So it's a bit, I don't know, it's a little bit kind of um, weirdly gendered or weirdly imbalanced in yeah. the relationship. Because Gertrude Stein always was like the big talented one out of the two of them. But after Gertrude Stein died, um, Alice B. Toklas years later, because she was such a great cook and such a great host, wrote a cookbook. And um, in it, there's a recipe for um, hashish fudge. (laughs) And what I love about it is that this little old lady has written this recipe for hashish fudge really innocently. She was just like, this is just a recipe that me and Gertrude loved and served it at all the parties. And it was great. And the publishers had a meltdown because the recipe goes hashish fudge. Really easy to whip up on a rainy day. (laughs) She gives you the recipe for it. And she says, you know, one or two's enough. Expect, once you eat it, to have bouts of, like, ecstatic laughter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And to go on to, like, a different plane. In the end, she gives you a little description. Because she's like, you know, I know cannabis isn't that easy to get hold of, guys. She gives you a little guide on how to get hold of cannabis and how to grow your own as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Which I just thought was lovely. And I was like, what a nice <laughs> kind of <laughs> incredible. <laughs> I love the idea, yeah, that this little old lady's just telling you how to score. <laughs> this little old lady's just like... I like that she's just basically... Everyone was saying to her for years, like, Alice, you should do right. And she was like, oh, I'm not as talented as Gertrude. I'm not, I don't want to write. And then eventually she wrote this cookbook years later. And she was just, just ended with like the biggest mic drop. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please like, subscribe and leave a review as it makes a huge difference. And if you want to follow us, you can find us on Facebook, which is at Is It Art Though, spelt T-H-O. Instagram, which is Is It underscore Art Though. Or Twitter, which is Is It Art Though 1. See you next time.